Blog Talk Radio. After a brief stay, his schooner sailed toward Wilmington, a seaport 25 miles upriver. Unbeknownst to Mosley Ashley Curtis, this leg of his voyage was like a descent through the Cape Fear Pass. He sailed past Sugarloaf, the high sand dune where colonial militia led by Colonel Roger Moore was said to have conquered the last of the Cape Fear Indians. He passed under Fort Johnston with his oyster shell and pitch pine walls built by enslaved Africans in 1802. Along the western bank of the Cape Fear River, Curtis peered into the cypress swamps draped with Spanish moss. Here and there, Hundreds of black hands hewed out great rice plantations along the water's edge. You see, the Cape Fear River was full of bloody black bodies that day, that black people couldn't find their way, that black men died from gunshots in their backs, that black women that very smart and bold black men were put on the train and given a free ride out of town where they were told to remain. They said that the dead bodies were left in the streets. The foul smell was so strong that buzzards circled for weeks. That black babies cried and moaned for their fathers and a bite to eat. That black folks lost all their savings and were left helpless and beat. It had to be done, said the white people who started it. They loved their town until the blacks tried to change it. They took over the city to restore their heritage, they said. They were heroes to many who wanted uppity folks dead. Some folks still don't see anything wrong with what they did, or that any harm was done to the ones who ran and hid. Serious damage was done to the soul of the town. That's why folks want to turn it around. Now is the time to make up for the crime to help our children learn from our mistake, to ensure that there will be no more 1898. Well, how are the children to do? This year the Queen Quet. Happy Omen Month to all of the So glad that the children to tune in one more again to this year. We show Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio, where we the geek uplifting to the living legacy and a pay ancestral homage. This year, you then chillin' as we together together. And this year, last episode for Black History Month 2014, first episode for Oman Montia in the Gullah Geechee Nation 2014. We're going to dedicate this year program this evening to Sister Anne Shepherd of the Wilmington 10. We want to also dedicate this year to all of them of the Wilmington 10 who done cross over into the realm of the ancestors. We won't take this your time for give a moment of silence for these your children from the North Kakalaki part of the Gullah Geechee Nation. Amen. Ashe. We're so glad that hundred children to tune in one more again for Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio and things like that. They shed a head upon the Gullah Geechee Nation. So glad that hundred to tune in one more again to be still at the last night and things like that. We're around the world. We've almost done make 90,000. We're so glad that hundred to tune in to this broadcast and share them with hundred family and things like that. Well, this should be the evening that hundred need to gather all the family around, gather all the children, gather everybody. Because plenty of hundred children might never yet afford now about Wilmington, North Kakalaki. But this evening, we going to have a guest here. That hundred and yet upon this year program for now. Chris Viver and things like that. Who to make this your film called Wilmington on Fire. So it coming out soon and we want to give hundred children a lead up there. But for make sure hundred children around the world can understand when we the crack we teeth, we go doing this way. The way that many of our people now speak in Wilmington, North Carolina. Like this. Because they have been taught to speak this as their primary language, as so many other things had been taught, as so many other things had been washed away along the coastline of Wilmington, along the North Carolina coast over the decades. It is somewhat ironic to look back through the Gullah Geechee Al-Kebulan archive to look through just a few works on Wilmington, North Carolina, and find 
everything from black pirates to enslaved Africans that existed there from the 1700s into the 1800s to then arrive at a story such as the one that we are going to be speaking of tonight and that I've spoken on many other times on this broadcast so that the world would recognize the dynamics of what has taken place in North Carolina, where today, if many of you visit there and ask about Gullah Geechee culture, you will probably very rapidly be told to go into South Carolina to be able to find it, because again, this is one of those things that has been washed away from the North Carolina coastline in a illustrative fashion, we say this, but in a reality, we deal with psychological things that have been done to deconstruct the living out of Gullah Geechee culture. We deal with the actual political dynamics that have caused gentrification and even genocide to take place within Wilmington, North Carolina, all trailing behind a long legacy of sea-fearing peoples, people that went out on the water without fear, that actually were the watermen and women of that coast that fed their families from the waterway of Cape Fear. They did not have fear when they went out onto it to then enter into day where there are those few that only will speak in whispers to you if you start to discuss land rights and human rights within the city of Wilmington. And so it is that we enter a time where those stories that had been burned, had been buried, had been suppressed, had been washed out, are now rising yet from the ashes of a time in 1898 that, interestingly enough, has been referred to as an uprising, a rebellion, a race riot, and a massacre. All of these terminologies for the same incident, the same event, the same occurrence, the same histine, 98. Now, on November the 10th, 1898, and for days afterwards, this is all during the Reconstruction period that many of you heard me speak about during Black History Month, that we have a situation where there's black land ownership, black business ownership, black institution ownership in Wilmington, North Carolina. And although this might be your first time tonight hearing of Wilmington, North Carolina, Wilmington, North Carolina is a very interesting place because it is the largest port still in North Carolina. So what does that tell you? It's an economic center. So herein we can think back to 1898 and start to consider some reasons why there was the first coup d'etat in North America, all right, to have happened in a town called Wilmington, a place that most have not heard of. We'll say it's not a major, major city, but is a major city, but one that is a southern city that kind of has gone by the radar of even some of us who live right next door in South Carolina. It wasn't until I was an adult that I ever really heard of the town of Wilmington and where it was geographically right along the coast from where we be. So here it is tonight that we want to go into those ashes because we know that truth crushed to the earth shall rise again. We want tonight to now have rise from those ashes the truth of the Gullah Geechee story and Wilmington through the maker's eyes for this new documentary called Wilmington on Fire. We welcome back to Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio, Brother Christopher Everett. How honored to do this evening, Brother Christopher. Hey, how you doing, Queen Quinn? How you doing today? Man, I do quite well. So glad for Yeti on her voice and things like that. So glad that Hunter to join. We won more again for Nietzsche Airwaves. So now, yeah, tell, yeah, tell the listeners what's going on. Right now, because we know it's been a little minute since you've been, Panya, but we know the yeah. film is finally 
nearing completion and release. Yes. When yes. should we be expecting to actually see this film that you know I've been waiting on and all my <laughs> listeners have been waiting on, Wilmington on Fire? When is it scheduled to actually come out? We're going we're gonna to put it out this summer. You know what I'm saying? We're going to put it out this summer. Um, I say probably about June slash July, but it's definitely coming out this summer. You know, we're in post-production now. You know, it's coming along real well. Um, I think everyone is really, really going to be impressed with this film. Excellent, excellent. So we are definitely looking for it to be a hot summer then with a film coming out called Wilmington on Fire. No doubt it has to be a hot summer. And I know it's going to be quite a hot summer when we start talking about this type of topic in Wilmington because I know that Alex Manley, who is part of the Gullah Geechee Hall of Fame, was critical to, we should say, somewhat of the start of the story Mm -hmm. that we hear of when you start to investigate the Wilmington Massacre and this coup d'etat that took place. Tell us, because I know you've done a lot more in-depth research. I know there is one marker in Wilmington to Alex Manley Mm -hmm. and his newspaper that was there, but since you've done more in-depth research, Tell us more about what you've discovered and been able to bring to surface about Alex Manley and the beginning of what became known as the Wilmington Massacre. Well, uh, as you know, and some of the listeners or whoever might not know, we actually have Alex Manley's grandson in the film, um, Dr. Lewin, based out of Atlanta. And we also have a few other historians that know about Manley's history and all of that stuff. But, you know, Alex Manley... Um, he was a mulatto, African-American man, um, was born a slave. And after the end of slavery, <clears throat> as he grew up, him and his brothers, they went to Hampton University, got educated. But what made Alex Manley, his situation, you know, kind of different, that he could actually pass for being a white man. Like if you actually mm-hmm. just look at his pictures and you didn't know, you know, he was African-American, you really couldn't tell because he pretty much could pass for any white guy out here. But he right. never he never claimed it. He always said he was he was he was a black man, and he never right. shied away from that. And after mm-hmm. he graduated from Hampton, he moved to Wilmington because you know back in those days, Wilmington was a was a major city in the southeast. Um, right. A lot of the port activity. Um, a lot of African Americans were flocking towards the city because you had all type of advertisements and in papers all over the country telling African Americans to come to Wilmington. Mm-hmm. There are good jobs here. There's opportunity to buy land, buy houses. The educational system is good here for your children. Um, they, have, they have resources to start a business if you like. So a lot of African Americans came towards Wilmington, you know, because this was just a short period right after slavery. So a lot of African Americans just wanted a new start in the American right. society. So Alex mm-hmm. Manley came to town. He started working for, he started actually working for um his future father-in-law. And mm-hmm. then that's when he met his wife, um, Caroline Sajwa. Right. And then those two hooked up. But the thing that made that kind of, that situation weird, her family didn't really want her to marry him because he was just too light. <laughs> you know, so, but, yeah, you know, it's his grandson was telling us about that. And yeah. So, but they kind of, you know, worked it out and they got married and, and stuff like that. And he eventually started his newspaper, um, the Wilmington Daily Record, which yes. was pretty much the only black daily newspaper in the country back in those days. And right. he pretty much got a start, his startup money from the black churches in Wilmington, because the black churches back then played a key role in economic development. A lot of the black businesses, not only Manley's business, but a lot of businesses got their startup money from the black churches back in Wilmington. Right. And note that note that you said back then. We will yeah, come back you. to that topic. Yes, as you said, <laughs> that the black churches played a major role in economic development and economic empowerment of our community back then. We're gonna get back mm-hmm. to why that should still be the case. But go right ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, after he was doing his paper, um, it, was a, it was a very successful newspaper in Wilmington and throughout North Carolina. It advertised from white businesses and, and black businesses, and it was doing very well. But eventually down the line, a lady by the name of Rebecca Felton in Georgia, you know, she made a few 
inflammatory speeches talking about how black men, you know, are raping white women, you know, during the Reconstruction era, and white men aren't there to protect their women. So what are y'all going to do about it? Right. <laughs> you know, so there's a thing where Alex Manley reads this article, and he decides to write about it in his paper and mm-hmm. talks about how, you know, a lot of times it's not really rape with with black men and, and right. white women. A lot of times it's consensual. And like you were saying, you know, when we interviewed you, it's only when they get caught is when they say, you know, he raped me or something like that. You know, so he kind of spoke right. out against that. And right. months down the line, the people behind 1898 Massacre needed something to gravitate and use to help start what they were trying to do, which was the massacre in Jim Crow throughout North Carolina. So they just mm-hmm. used that manly target as some type of ammunition. They were going to do what they were going to do anyway. Anyway, but they exactly. But they to find something that was just a hot-button topic. And you look at all the massacres, whether it was Tulsa or whatever, Rosewood, mm-hmm. they always used the thing with the white woman being yep. raped or harmed in some type of way. All the massacres involving African-Americans, they always used that line, that story. And that's what they right. did in, you know, with 1898 massacre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there is that commonality and there is that thread that many people are now more aware of these massacres even occurring because of the film Rosewood, which yeah. many people who saw Rosewood, the difference between Wilmington and Fire and Rosewood is Wilmington and Fire is a documentary and Rosewood was a film, so to speak. Yeah. And so, yeah. but at least it enlightened people. We still... Mm have had many of the documentaries about Tulsa, Oklahoma, named Black Wall Street in particular, those documentaries have been pretty much suppressed unless you were around to have purchased them back in the 1990s, 80s and 90s when certain documentaries came out or maybe somebody might have slipped something on the YouTube now. You don't find as many people being aware of Black Wall Street and Tulsa, Oklahoma and what took place before they were bombed. And so here it is that you have a black business center actually bombed in order to prevent it from continuing to exist. And then you have this situation where a coup d'etat takes place in order to try to once again stop the empowerment of black people. And like you said, here it is that there was already a mindset of destruction. We're going to do something anyway but we just need a reason. You know, that's yeah. like somebody running up to you, give me a reason, give me, give me a reason to hit you, give me a reason, you know. Yeah. And so so here comes the downfall, and it's always the story, as you said, and we know there were many lynchings done based mm-hmm. on the same thing. Emmett Till's death, based on yep. the same thing. The, the whole Birth of a Nation film, based on the same mm-hmm. concept. Oh, there's going to be harm to a white woman. Or a white woman said you did her harm. The Scottsboro Boys, same stuff. So we can go from massacre to lynching, lynching to massacre, back and forth from Reconstruction to today and find this same type of thread going through all of these situations. Now, it's interesting because you mentioned something also that was kind of critical when we start talking about the dynamics of the black community. Talking about Alex Manley and the fact that he could have passed, but he did not. And here it is that he could have made this as a so-called economic decision for himself and his family. He could have easily said, well, it'll be easier on me as a black man in America if I make people think I'm not a black man in America. But he chose not to do that. Just like you have chosen to at this time, take on such an endeavor as doing a film like this that has so many political hot spots, like you mentioned oh, yeah. earlier, in it <laughs> even today, you know, and you yeah. live in North Carolina, is that correct? Oh, yeah, I live in North Carolina. I go to Wilmington a lot as well, you know. I don't hide, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but they, another thing about Alex Manley, I would like to tell you about, I know, um, I'm Dr. Manley, you know, his grandson shared in the film. Mm-hmm. And also one of the historians we got in the film where, you know, when Manley, you know, when him and his brothers and, and all that escaped, 
Wilmington during the massacre, you know, he moved to Philadelphia. Right. And okay. He actually went to Hampton to study commercial painting, like painting buildings yeah. and houses and stuff like that. So that's the type of stuff he kind of had to do in Philadelphia. He never really got in the newspaper business again after that. He never really talked about it no more after that. And mm-hmm. he actually, because in Philadelphia, you know how they always try to make it seem like the racism is just down south. Oh, well, yeah. I'm, I'm liking, the, I'm liking the, 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 the term of Malcolm X, you know, anything below Canada is down south. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, so when he was in Philadelphia, all the good-paying union jobs were pretty much for white men. You know what I'm saying? Especially like doing commercial painting. That was a union gig. Union and gig. in order to even get a good paying job, they block, they block African Americans out of it. So he pretty much had to pretend to be a white man once he ah. went to Philadelphia. Just, But he had to do it just to feed his family. Right. You know? So I think that was the only time. He didn't really want to do it, but he had yeah. no choice because exactly of racism. against the wall. Yeah. And yeah. The, and. The, irony that you brought up, I'm glad you mentioned that because most of us don't get to read anything that talks about his life after he left Wilmington, number one, and also to eliminate the illusion that our people have that the deep, that down south, first of all, all down south is not the deep south. That's the first illusion. The second thing is that every place is in the south below the the imaginary Mason-Dixon line was the only places where slavery existed, the only places where racism ever existed, and that when you went up north, you had freedom. Obviously, you did not, okay, based on just the one example that you just gave. But I think that these same things that cause our people to even believe these things at this point have a lot to do with, number one, not knowing all of our story, and number two, having been indoctrinated to believe certain things. Like, I find it that when we talk about Alex Manley, this man's a business owner. In the 1800s, we do not hear the stories of black business owners even during Black History Month. So for a lot of people, right? So a lot of people start wondering, is this a legend? Is this really true? Because you mean black people own businesses? 1800s? Wow. And and that right there, in and of itself, your film is going to awaken a lot of people. Definitely, definitely. I know, like, and, you know, Nellie wasn't the only one. I know we have another descendant, um, the great-granddaughter of Thomas C. Miller. And Thomas C. Miller, um, he was one of Wilmington's wealthiest um, black men back then. He was ran out of town and lost everything he had. He had, like, the, he was a... He was a financier. He had his own. He had the only pawn shop in town back then. He had his own mm. bar. Mm. He, had, he had like the only one of the only black real estate companies there. You know, I right. got I got a lot. I found like we found like a lot of new documents of him. Like a lot of the the land holdings he had, and all of the you know all the stuff that was willed to him after slavery and everything. Right. That he just, you know he turned it around and, and made a good business um, model for himself. But he lost all of that because right. of the massive. And you had Ellen Pickens. They had their yeah. own fish um, distribution company. Distribution you had a company. lot of wealthy, wealthy black men and, and women back then. Yes, yes. And the thing is, when you say he was a good model, not only for him and his family, but for that entire community of having the coup d'etat happen was to eliminate the brain, eliminate examples from the community of showing that there are people here that are self-determined and that are independent. It seems to me that the Wilmington race riot was done to intentionally eliminate any thought of independence from coastal North Carolina or from North Carolina, especially amongst the black community. Is that part of your motivation to uncover that? Or what made you even, did you have family that might have been displaced in this massacre? What is it that made you suddenly say, well, this is the topic that I want to do as a documentary? Well, it's pretty much because, the reason why I want to do this, my hometown of Warrenburg, North Carolina, had some type of involvement in this whole thing as well. Not only Warrenburg, but all of North Carolina, because a lot of people, when you talk about Wilmington and people that know about the 1898 massacre, they say, they say, oh, you know, just something that happened in Wilmington, but that's not true. 
they just kind of chose Wilmington to actually do the massacre. But mm-hmm. it kind of laid the foundation to create all of this Jim Crow laws and all that stuff around the state of North Carolina. And Absolutely. my hometown, when I started doing research about this topic, you know, I ran into Larnberg a lot, where I'm from. And mm-hmm. I would see, like, a lot of white supremacy rallies back in 1897, 1898, leading up to the massacre, right uh-huh. here in my hometown of Larnberg. And people like the, the, the hate groups like the Red Shirts and stuff like that, they would hold rallies here. Really, the only pictures you can find of any Red Shirts are yes. Red Shirts that were holding rallies in Larnberg. That's the only picture you can find right? of Red Shirts. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in downtown Larnberg. That's the only pictures you can find of Red Shirts. Where you know, which are at the North Carolina State Archives, and we kind right. of show in the film as well, are based in Lawnburg. So I would see these things. I'm like, wow. And then I would see the same people that were involved in the massacre in Wilmington. They would come to Lawnburg and Rockingham and all these little areas around and speak. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, Alpha Waddell, yeah. he came to Lawnburg a few times to speak. A whole bunch of people, you know, they were actually yeah. involved in the massacre. I'm like, okay, this is a statewide thing, what they're doing. Right. And it was a recruitment well, mission. They were on recruitment. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Because you had a lot of people. You had red shirts and other people from Lawrenceburg and other areas come to Wilmington so they can get involved in the killing of black mm-hmm. people. Interesting. And see, a lot of people think that you know we're only talking about the past. But I actually was approached since the founding of the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition to even be involved in a documentary that I pray eventually will come out. But the person who was doing this film, she had left North Carolina herself. She's an Anglo woman and moved to California on the first thing smoking when she came of age and came back because her father was a grand wizard. Is that what they're called? Grand warlocks or grand wizard of the KKK. And she never... Yeah, Grand Wizard, and she had never, I guess because they act like warlocks, I was thinking that, Um, but Grand Wizard of the KKK, she actually came back undercover and went to a Ku Klux Klan rally, and this was in the 2000s. Do y'all hear me, listeners? This was in the 2000s in North Carolina, so in the United States of America. So when we're talking about the red shirts, although you may Google or Bing red shirts tonight while we're talking or while you're listening in to this on demand, you might say, oh, really, are they still around? They will still be around, but they just are under other names and under hoods, shall we say. Check this out, Queen Quick. I think like last year. Um, last year, we we showed this in my film. Last year, they had a, a news story on one of, a couple of the news stations in Wilmington. They had like the the Klan was was, was passing around flyers for recruitment. And this is last yeah. year, 2013, last- passing out flyers. See. 2013. So now y'all hear this. This is still going on. So let's not think that this is a Black History Month flashback we're giving you. We are giving you current events and current activities, which now let's let's go backwards. Let's go forward from Wilmington, 1898, but let's go backward from Wilmington and North Carolina, 2013, where these flyers are being handed out. And let's look at another aspect of what has happened whenever people of African descent have stood up for themselves in North Carolina and in particular in Wilmington. Let's talk a little bit about the Wilmington 10, who I dedicated program to tonight. Because many people, even here in South Carolina, we had not heard of the Wilmington 10. But interestingly enough, people in the human rights arena have heard of the Wilmington 10. Because of what took place with the Wilmington 10, Amnesty International declared them as political prisoners. Many have written that that was the first set of political prisoners ever designated within the United States. Now, we're talking about in the 1970s, 1976 now, where Amnesty International got involved in this case of the Wilmington 10. But now, you would think, you would say, well, wait a minute. 
the Wilmington massacres happened in 1898. There had to have been some kind of public outcry. You would think that that town would never want to do something wrong to black people again. Oh, no, they had to have corrected their act, right? No. What we find is that there's a suppression of media around these race riots, as they like to call them, and racial tensions in North Carolina, even up to now. And so when we start to talk about Wilmington on fire, that fire seemed to still be, you know, if y'all from the South, y'all know how it is. You burn a fire, you set something on fire, you get a good fire blazing. After a while, you see a little smoke, but you don't see flames, so you might walk away thinking, oh, the fire done out. Uh Uh-uh. Or you take a little bit of kindling trope on top, then the fire blazes again, right? So here it is. It seems that someone threw kindling into Wilmington once again, all right, when in 1971 they decided that, again, these Ku Klux Klans and white supremacist groups said they were going to patrol the streets because they weren't going to have this integration stuff continue in their area because in 1969 they had to close down williston high school which was the black high school all right so now they were told we're gonna shut that school completely down so that y'all have to let the black kids go into school the white kids and integration starts so now we have all these tensions that build up over years again from 69 to 71 we have a build-up happening here and now we have an explosion that ends up happening on February the 6th, 1971. Now, what have you found in any people who were connected to the Wilmington 10 involved in your work or your research during with Wilmington on Fire? Uh, yes, yes. You know, um, in Wilmington on Fire, you know, we, we briefly, we talk about the Wilmington 10 situation briefly. Um, mm-hmm. I know... They have a film coming out. I'll send you the information after we get off the air. Oh, um, they're actually having a premiere April fifth in at UNC Wilmington. Um, this guy named Cash Michaels and the um, the black newspaper in Wilmington, the uh, Wilmington Journal. They did a, a documentary about the Wilmington Ten. It's called like Pardon of Innocence. And, and um, I need but to get we, them on here. I need to get them on here so we can talk about that. Yeah, film. definitely, definitely. I'll, 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 yeah, I'll send you his information and everything after you know we finish tonight. But, um, you know, we talk about the Wilmington 10 situation because, like you were saying, it relates to 1898. And we have one of the Wilmington 10 um, members in my film, um, Willie Vereen, who's mm-hmm. part of the Wilmington 10, and also Larry Rennie Thomas. He's wrote two books about the Wilmington 10 incident. And mm-hmm. we also talked to a few other people who were living in Wilmington at the time as kids and grew up during that whole era and you yeah. know, talk about just how they had everything shut down and all that stuff like that, and the Klan was marching and all that. But mm-hmm. the Wilmington 10 situation, the 1898 stuff was kind of like a, like folklore and everything, mm-hmm. all the mm-hmm. way up to the Wilmington 10 situation. And then once the Wilmington 10 event went down and the whole world was watching, so like you said, Amnesty International, everybody, Angela Davis, Jesse Jackson, everybody mm-hmm. got involved in helping out the Wilmington 10. And then right. everybody was like, What's what's going on in this little this little town, this little yes. city? You know what, what's going on with the racism there? And then once right. people started talking about it, you got to go to 1898 and just that's that whole it. history. And then that's and when Pandora's box was open about 1898. Yes, yes. And interestingly enough, for all of you who have never heard their names, we're talking about Benjamin Chavis, Connie Tyndall, Marvin Chili Patrick, Wayne Moore, Reginald. Jerry Jacobs, James McCoy, William that really have lived, you know, tried to live their lives in peace as best they could, but had to leave Wilmington to try to do so. And there were several others who have suffered a lot of other injuries and, and had to deal with other disabling things that happened to them, greatly because of the psychological damage that was caused to them for being imprisoned 
okay, yeah. over this incident where they were charged with crimes that they weren't even involved in. Uh, and so here it is. That I'm glad to hear there's a film out there. Y'all have heard there are several books out there. You can look up some information. There's also the Wilmington Foundation, Wilmington 10 Foundation for Social Justice. Now, interestingly enough, Wayne Moore founded that organization, and what I thought was really interesting to me was their mission statement, that the foundation supports human rights, self-worth, democracy, and freedom. The primary mission is founded on the belief in the dignity of all people. And as a human rights advocate, as a human rights warrior, as a person that always seeks justice, the irony for me was that I had never heard of the Wilmington 10 Foundation in all my trips to Wilmington. And all the meetings we did regarding the Gullah Geechee Nation, no one ever showed up and said, there's a Wilmington 10 Foundation, and they focus on human rights. They need to know Queen Quet. They need to work with Queen Quet. No one ever did that. And interestingly enough, it took, again, like you were saying, us starting to kind of stir in those ashes, get a fire going here again, now Wilmington on Fire is coming forward, and now all this information is coming forward that there's the existence of this foundation. Why does it exist? Because of what happened to the Wilmington 10. Well, who were the Wilmington 10 and what happened with them? And then, like you said, what happened to them was really the outcome of what had been festering yeah. all those Every, years. Everything goes back to 1898. 1898. And I believe that the reason no one came forward, no one said anything, is the psychological issues associated with 1898. I know that there's the Wilmington Race Riot Commission. I know that they documented it. Anybody listening, you can type it in, and you can get their entire report as a PDF and so on of what they amassed about what happened. But what has happened in regard to the psychological issues in North Carolina that you found surrounding, like you said at first, people thinking this was like folklore about yeah. Wilmington Massacre. And and when you're coming forward to them today saying, no, this is not folklore. This is fact. I have pictures. I have papers. I have documents about who was run out of town and who was murdered in, in the streets and how blood poured, even snatching people out of pulpit. What have you encountered in terms of the psychology of people and the psychological issues around Wilmington and 1898. Oh, it's, you know, you, you, you still have people there. Like we interviewed, the reason why it kind of took me so long to finish this film, you know, I just didn't want to just dwell into history. I actually wanted to show Wilmington, the black community in Wilmington today as well. So all mm-hmm. of last year, that's all we did was just film and interview people, what's going on in Wilmington today and show how that's like a direct result of the 1898 massacre, Jim Crow, and all of that. But, you know, you have some people out there who are, who are fighting a good fight, you know, trying to do things in the community, but they're just outnumbered. You know, it's, it's only a handful, <laughs> a handful of them. And the sure. rest of you know, the black people there, it's just, I don't know, you know, it's when you deprive people economic, you know, from economics so long, you know, either people just move away or they just give up, you know. They just just look out just for for their family and their household, and that's it. I don't care what's going on with black people next to me or in the community. I'm just looking out for me and mine. And that's a lot of the mentality I see with black people there. Either they're just staying there, but they're just, you know, just a a self-interest type of thing with just their household or just them, or you have a lot of black people leaving. And that's another thing when we talk about what makes the Wilmington situation key is that that yes. was another reason why they did this mask to reverse the black majority. Because you know when you have the majority of a population of any city, you can dictate a you can dictate a lot of things. You know, say Absolutely. like if you're the majority and you want to put certain people in office who will do certain things for you and your community, right? You can pretty much get that because you have the majority voting block. Absolutely. But, and that was one of the main reasons why they did the mask to reverse that as well. But you see it more prevalent now where African Americans are continuing to leave Wilmington but mm-hmm. a lot of white a lot of white white folks are moving into, into Wilmington. Wilmington. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And part of the, the influx now has caused gentrification. And my listeners know that I recently did an entire episode on genocide and gentrification in the Gullah Geechee Nation. And so just last night in preparation for this show, it wasn't even in preparation for the show. It actually was on the Gullah Geechee Nation Facebook fan page. Someone yeah. in the news feed had an article up about housing and urban development in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I happened to look at that article, and I said, well, this has to be the ancestors putting this in front of my face because God only knows that tomorrow night I intend to discuss some of the displacement issues that have happened not only directly in the city, downtown Wilmington, North Carolina, but also out in Seabreeze, North Carolina, yeah. right on the outskirts and various other areas. Now, what what have you seen today? Because just like you're saying, you have this outward migration currently of people of African descent out of Wilmington for a lot of reasons, the psychological reasons, the disenfranchisement, the racial profiling. I mean, it's nonstop. So they leave, but they are replaced. They are replaced by new tenants as they leave. So what is exactly going on? Because I know each time I go to Wilmington, it's starting to get a little harder and harder to remember where you were driving the last time because a lot of stuff is altered. Yeah, see, there, like a lot of your historical black areas, like the Brooklyn area and the north side, you know, North 4th Street and all that, all that stuff is being gentrified now. You know, a lot of, you know, black people are just selling their homes because, like, it's just the job opportunities there for a lot of African Americans. They might be educated and everything, but they're not getting hired. So, you right. know, you have, to, you have to be able to provide for you and yours. So, if you, you know, you're not getting hired, because of certain things like that, you know, you're going to look towards Raleigh, Charlotte, Atlanta, places like that. A lot of times your best and your brightest have, have to just leave after college, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you have a lot of um, tech um, tech companies, startups, are starting to come to Wilmington. They have these different tech um, summits like almost every month. They're trying to they're trying to bring like a lot of tech startups and, and new trendy companies to Wilmington because the cost of living is cheap. You know, people are coming from everywhere, New York and the other places, because the cost of living is cheap. The beach area, um, get a house is not that expensive, like living in New York. I even know, know people from New York have asked me about Wilmington or thinking about moving right? to Wilmington. Yeah, saying that, you know, they, they like the area. The cost of living is cheap. It's not too big, not too small. They like the beach. You know, they're right. tired of living in New York where, you know, like a million dollars in rent. So it's a very attractive marketplace, you know, Absolutely. for those type of, you know, gentrification, you know, models. Right. And that's what's happening a lot in your area like Castle Street in Brooklyn. And in African Americans, I've been telling, you know, people in the Wilmington for the past two years, I'm like, yo, y'all need to really organize and start buying up some of these, you know, these areas and really start developing some type of business districts. And that's why... I worked hard to get Dr. Anderson, Dr. Claude Anderson in the film, which was yeah. difficult. But I finally convinced him to come on to really explain mm-hmm. to black people in Wilmington what the steps you need to do and how, you know, it's important to develop some economic, you know, development and togetherness in Wilmington. Right. And it's interesting, though, because it's somewhat of a conundrum. Like you mm-hmm. said, if your brain trusts, and all your new students and everyone is saying, well, I'm not getting hired here, so I need to leave. Oh, because of my race is possibly why I'm not getting hired here, I need to leave. Because if I stay here, I cannot afford a home. I cannot afford to open a business. So now if your brain trusts who would be the, the mind of the operation leaves town, then how do you have the galvanizing of the people that you're talking about, you know? Because yeah. so, uh, so I, I know a few people right now. I know, I know about 10 people right now who are well-educated, great business savvy, you know, try to start businesses in Wilmington and all that, and they, they're actually thinking about leaving now to go to Atlanta and other places. You know, it's just right. like you have to eventually, you know, you just have to sometimes just say, you know what, if, if we're not going to organize and be together as a people, you, you, have, you eventually have to just do something else. And you can't blame and, and them for that. You can't go to find other people with the same mindset, and that's why many of them go ahead and leave. It's so yeah. that they but can see, be but the, the thing is, the trick, yeah. the trick of it all is that 
even if you go somewhere else, it's pretty much going to be the same thing. Because look at Spike Lee. You know, he was talking about gentrification in New York. Absolutely. It don't matter where you at. I lived in Atlanta and Charlotte. And they're doing the same thing in all these bigger places. Just these bigger places probably just have more things to do, pretty much right. meaning there's more places to spend your money at. <laughs> you yes. know, so what it's, it's the same thing. But you know what it is? It's the grass is always greener on the other side. See, that's why I'm saying it's that conundrum so someone can make their decision, they can leave, but then once they get there, they're going to leave again. They'll get there yeah. and then they got to leave again because it's the same thing because you still don't have unity. If the reason yeah. you're moving around is for you still to feed you and yours only, that's not unity. That's just yeah. you, and that's called capitalism. So, therefore... Yeah. You are still just acting as an individual as opposed to acting as part of a collective unit, where what was existing in Wilmington in 1898 was a collective unit. You actually had a community. You had people who operated businesses that contributed to the institutions, including their spiritual institutions, and those spiritual institutions contributing back to the community and building up the people and the businesses. And so you had an economic foundation as well as a spiritual foundation to stand on. Once you go ahead and start chiseling, literally coming in and hitting against that type of a foundation and chip it away, Eventually, you have nothing there. And so, like you said, it doesn't matter then if that is Wilmington, North Carolina. It doesn't matter if that's Atlanta, Georgia. It doesn't matter if that's Brooklyn New- Brooklyn, and, and Wilmington or Brooklyn and Brooklyn, New York. You know, mm-hmm. if you go ahead, you will end up with nothing. And that is the difference. Here in the Gullah Geechee Nation, that has been the hardest thing and the hardest space to educate people has been Wilmington, North Carolina, because of, like you said, the brain trust leaving, the ones who remain might be elderly now, don't want to talk, don't want to really be yeah. seen. It's yeah. like, I already don't live my life now. I don't want to be caught up in nothing. Because they saw mm-hmm. these different tragedies happen whenever someone mm-hmm. spoke out and said, let's unify, let's organize, let's rally together. And so, therefore, the threat even of a possibility of of someone coming after you, it's so just the threat is so great. I don't even come to a meeting. I I won't even come to a meeting because I don't want nobody to might maybe possibly say that my name was on that list because they remember those lists of black people's names that went by that said these people were murdered because they stood up or these people were jailed because they was they stood up and so that is part of. The operation of genocide, as I mentioned, if anyone has not heard that episode, just go back into the archives of Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio, and you can even download it for free from from iTunes. You can download it for free from our website. But look up the episode on destroying black townships, genocide and gentrification in the Gullah Geechee Nation. And these are all some of the things that Brother Christopher Everett is bringing out tonight that we're talking about is still being seen now. Now, don't get us wrong. We're not talking about this, what he found in research from 1898. We're talking about right now, 2014, that this is what we're seeing. And it all ties back to 1898. The psychological damage is still there. It is a part of the DNA of what has happened to people whose elders and ancestors suffered this massacre, suffered these murders in Wilmington. And this is not going to be the last broadcast that we do about Wilmington on Fire. As you heard, it's coming out this summer. But in the meantime, go to YouTube, type in Wilmington on Fire. You can see the trailer for the film. Also see several clips from The Descendant of Alex Manley. You can see the clip with me. You can see the clip with Dr. Umar Johnson. You can see the clip of Brother Court Anderson. We have, who else do you have in the film? I got Dr. Claude Anderson, yourself. Uh, we have The Descendant of Alex Manley, Senator of um, Thomas C. Miller. We have um, you know, Larry Rennie Thomas, who's wrote several books about 1898 and the Wilmington Ten. We have Willie Vereen from the Wilmington Ten. We have just a slew of people. Um, Professor William Darity from Duke University. He wrote um, the economic um, portion of the, of the Wilmington Race Riot Commission report. 
We have the lady who actually was the head of the commission report as well, Lorraine Fleet. She's in the field of independent researcher, Kent Chatfield, who's done a lot of research about 1898 and provide a lot of information for the Racial Right Commission. He's in the film. We just have a whole bunch of people, especially people like Claude Anderson and people like that. You know, that was, it was hard to get people like that in the film, but, you know. Right, but you it, did it. You know, yeah, we, we made it happen. Yes, yes, and I'm glad you are making this film happen. We are definitely looking forward to the hot summer, and those of you who are going to be coming out to the Gullah Geechee Nation International Music and Movement Festival the first Saturday in August. This year we are back in Charleston, South Carolina. We are going to be premiering this film during the festival. The last time we were in Charleston, we sat there, we watched the film on that waterfront where our ancestors were first brought into that port city. And so this year, we're going to bring a little bit of the port city of Wilmington, North Carolina, right to the port city of Charleston, South Carolina, here in the Gullah Geechee Nation with the showing of Wilmington on fire. So you know my copy better be in the mail. Like like you take your copy, your first copy out of the box, this how this go. You take yours and your mama one and you put them <laughs> off to the side. And then the next one is Queen Quint. Coming out the box, I want my t shirt and all that stuff. And I'm not a t shirt wearer, but I'm going to be wearing this one. Um, so right. I, I'm looking forward to seeing the film and definitely having an opportunity to help you continue to promote the film because I think that a lot more dialogue needs to happen about the psychological issues, about the economic issues, about the current issues we're fighting for and in regard to land ownership and continued sustainability of the economics of families along this coastline, especially of people of African descent in North America and around the world. Because I think so many people do not know our story, as I mentioned earlier, so it takes us to tell it. So I'm so pleased that you are a blessing to all of us that you are telling us this story and have chosen the right medium at the right time to do it because film is something that many of our younger people take too much quicker than the books and the reports that are written. And so this is like that. I said to some students, I said, if a picture is worth a thousand words, how many do you think, how many words you think a film is worth? And they couldn't even really answer me, you know? And so I think your film is going to give us an answer to that and at least speak volumes to the world about what took place in Wilmington and how the truth needs to rise from those ashes. And so I'm going to open up the phone lines. I see we have a listener or two on the line with us tonight. The telephone number is 347 347 347-324-3903-843-724-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824-8437-824
more almost more educated blacks and business owners than almost anywhere in the whole southeast it, and that at some point the the whites were threatened and um sort of uh started the process of all of these horrible things and so I'm really glad you're making it known and that it's going to come out and be public. But I will tell you, even as a, a white woman there, I, the, the, you can feel the intensity yeah. for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I know, I know exactly what you mean. And I'm so glad that it's truly divine order that you called because I saw your number come up at one point and then it disappeared. And when I came back to the switchboard and saw someone was back on, I was glad to see you. There was a caller and I'm glad it's you to share your experience because many times on this broadcast, I know a lot of listeners will say, well, what, only black people call in? You know, <laughs> even though I have a global audience. So, you know, tonight it's so apropos for you to call in. And I'm sure, being that you're in Charleston, you'll be right there at the Gullah Geechee Nation International Music and Movement Festival to see the film. Oh, and I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely come out. Yeah, please come out. Yeah. And Absolutely. Gonna... I will. We will definitely look forward to it. Cool. Yeah. Are, you on, are you on Facebook? I am. Yeah, go to, um, to Facebook.com slash Wilmington on Fire. Like the page, you know. I'm always up on there, constantly updating stuff, and we put everything on there. You know, posters, clips, everything. You know, just check and that out, and you can stay up to date with everything. The next fundraising campaign he'll definitely have on there, too, for the film. He always does his Indiegogo campaigns, and so you'll see everything on a regular basis. So we appreciate you calling, and we appreciate you sharing that so that all my listeners worldwide would know that what we're talking about is current-day events, and it's something it's, that it. all of us have to take part in changing. Yes, ma'am, absolutely. All right, well, thank you, guys. I look forward to the film. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Peace and blessings. Peace. Take care. Bye. Now, see, that that tells you, that speaks volumes to why it's so important, the work that you're doing, because so many people would immediately try to say, well, y'all are just racist because y'all want to talk about this, or y'all should forget it. You know, you can't forget something like this. It's too horrific to be forgotten. And as she said, these tensions are still alive, and I like to say alive and sick, not alive and well in Wilmington today. And as everyone just heard, please go to Facebook, like the page for Wilmington on Fire. We'll definitely keep you posted on the Gullah Geechee Nation Facebook fan page as well. Brother Christopher Everett, any last words for the listeners tonight? Uh, I mean, I'm just, I'm just, you know, grateful for all the support. Just like the caller just called in, you know, hearing stuff like that. You know, when people appreciate what you're doing, you know, it's been a long two years of sacrificing and everything. And that really, you know, hearing callers like that and, and people like yourself who, who always give me a platform and the support, you know, it really means a lot, you know, and it keeps me motivated. It keeps me going. And I just want everybody just to check out, you know, check us out on Facebook.com slash Wilmington on Fire so they can know what's going on with everything in regards to the film. And we're coming this summer. It's going to be a real good film. And I think a lot of people will be enlightened by it as well. Definitely, definitely. I appreciate you. You have greatly enlightened us already tonight with all that you said. My brother Christopher, you know I'm going to still be hitting you up on Facebook. You know I hit you hard on Facebook. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also on Twitter. Y'all can also follow Wilmington on Fire Twitter so that you can keep up with all the things that are going on and with the updates because we are going to keep this fire burning. So, my brother, you stay strong and be blessed. Peace to you. All right. And to all my listeners, I appreciate each and every one of you that have been supporting the Gullah Geechee Land and Legacy World Tour. We still are in the process of the Gullah Geechee Land and Legacy Fundraising. Please go to Gullah Geechee Nation on B a Facebook fan so that you can also keep up with the Land and Legacy fundraising and also where my next stops are on the tour. And one of those next stops would be to also show people up north in the BK up there 
what we doing down here in the Gullah Geechee Nation. But I'm so glad that Hunter to tune in one more again to this year Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio Station. This year the Queen Quit head upon the body of the Gullah Geechee Nation. Hunter chillin', stay strong, be blessed, never give up your land, never give up the family, never give up the culture. This year the who we be. We be Gullah Geechee anointed people from North Kakalaki down to Florida, Ponesia, Sea Islands, 30 to 35 miles inland, Ponda Manland. This year, to the Gullah Geechee Nation. So glad that Hunter Chillin tune in one more again to Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio Station. Peace and blessings. Happy Oman Month to all the Oman and Chillin what they out there. Peace and blessings. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.